All right. So let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and dive in. Father, I thank you so much that we get to gather as a family today on this Good Friday. And it seems ironic to call today good on a day that you were killed, and yet we recognize why, and we will recognize it even more as we dive in. So, Father, would you guide this time? Would you take from the things you laid on my heart and honestly just glorify yourself right now? I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. It is ironic that we call today Good Friday, seeing that Jesus was crucified on a cross, the one that we call our Savior died. And yet, as, as we dive in a little bit, it's going to become clear why we call today good. But before I get there, I just want to recognize that for the Jews around the world, this is an equally important, equally holy day. Does anybody know what today is on the Jewish calendar? It's Passover. And you're going, okay, that's great, but what does Passover have to do with Easter and Good Friday? And I'm really glad that you asked that question. I'm going to explain. Um, Go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 11. If you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seats in front of you. Um, I just want to take us on a bit of a tour through a, a, a tremendously important moment in Israel's history, a, a day that marked them as a nation. You see, we know the story of the Exodus. We know that the Israelites were a nation that God hand-selected and said, you're going to be my people. And I want you to worship me. I will be your God. I will protect you. And for a time, it seemed like he had when he ushered them out of their land during a particularly terrible famine into the land of Egypt. They survived the famine because God had brought them there through a guy named Joseph. However, as generation followed generation, their time in Egypt became less and less comfortable. And they went from being a people who were honored to a people who were used as slave labor. And eventually the people started crying out to God, going, God, save us. Please get us out of here. We need you. Have you forgotten about us? And God hadn't forgotten about them. And so he called a guy named Moses and he said, I want you to be my representative. I want you to go to Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And so Moses, after a a whole lot of encouragement and cajoling from God, finally scraped up the courage to go before Pharaoh and he said, listen, Yahweh, the God of Israel, tells you to let his people go. (laughs) And Pharaoh just laughed. Because I'm not going to let go of all of my free slave labor. Forget it. And so Moses warned him, he said, then my God is going to humble all of your gods that you Egyptians worship. And he is going to begin to bring plagues upon Egypt that will bring you to your knees until you relent and let his people go. And so plague followed plague followed plague. There were ten of them in all. And if we were to take the time to look at them, we would see that each and every one of those plagues actually targeted a different one of Egypt's gods. For instance, they worshipped the Nile River. It was the lifeblood of Egypt. And so God turned the Nile River into blood. They worshipped a goddess named Hecate. She was a, a fertility goddess that looked like a frog. And so all of a sudden we have all these frogs coming out of the Nile and overrunning the Egyptian houses. They can't get them out of there. They worshipped Ra, the sun god. If you lived in the desert, you probably would too. 
And yet God turned the sun into darkness. And it was darkness everywhere over Egypt except for one place, the land of Goshen, the place where the Israelites resided. And in each and every one of these plagues, Yahweh, the God of Israel, said, proved to the Egyptians that I alone am God. I alone am worthy to be worshipped. And I alone can save. Those so-called gods that you worship have no power whatsoever. And throughout this time, it tremendously impacted Egypt. It brought them to their knees. Probably the only reason that Pharaoh didn't relent and let the people of Israel go is because at some point he just got prideful and said, I will not give up. I'm a god. You don't tell me what to do. And so Moses was dispatched by God for one last run into Pharaoh's place. And he said there's going to be one last plague, and this last plague is going to be worse than all the other ones combined. This last plague will break the back of Pharaoh's resolve, and he will let you go. And so in Exodus chapter 11, we're going to read what Moses said to Pharaoh, beginning in verse 4. Moses said, This is what Yahweh the Lord says. About midnight, I will go through Egypt and every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of his female slave who is at her handmill and all the firstborn cattle as well. In other words, I'm not going to make a distinction based upon hierarchy. More important people are not going to escape this. Verse 6, there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than has ever been or ever will be again. But... Amongst the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, Pharaoh, I will leave. You will let God's people go. And so he left. And then he went to the people of Israel. See, God had prepared a way for the people of Israel to be protected and shielded from what was about to happen, the worst of all of the plagues. And he told Moses to explain to the Israelites what they were to do. This this was the plan. You are to go, each family is to go out into your flocks and you are to choose a single lamb on the 10th day of the first month of the year, according to the Israelite calendar. So on the 10th day of your first month, Go out and choose a spotless lamb. And let's go ahead and read that in in chapter 12. He's going to talk about the kind of animal they were supposed to choose in verse 5 of chapter 12. The animal you choose must be a year-old male without defect. In other words, a pure, spotless lamb or goat. And this is what they were supposed to do. Choose that lamb. Bring the lamb into your home. And from the 10th day of the first month, to the 14th day of the first month. So for about four days, this lamb is going to live in your home. You're going to feed it. It's going to sleep next to you. Your kids are going to grow attached to it. They're going to give it names. It's going to become the family pet. In other words, your heart's going to become attached to this little lamb that is living with you. And then, after this time that you have spent with this lamb, I just want you to take it I want, you to, I want you to grab a bull. I want you to kill it. I want you to gather its blood in a bowl. 
And then once you have its blood gathered in a bowl, I want you to take that blood and I want you to wipe it on the door frame and the tops of your homes. Because this is what's going to happen. Verse 12 of chapter 12. On the same night that you have sacrificed this lamb and you've eaten it, I am going to pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment upon all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And the blood will be to you a sign on the houses. I'm sorry. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see this blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So I want you to think for just a moment. Imagine being in the Israelites' shoes. You've already seen what Yahweh can do. You've seen nine tremendously destructive plagues that has brought perhaps the most powerful nation in the world at that time to its knees. And now all of a sudden, you're hearing that the worst plague is still to come and it's going to affect the firstborn children of your families and of your flocks. And you have taken this lamb into your home. You've cared for it. You've loved on it. And then you've sacrificed it and you've taken its blood and you've wiped it on the doorframe and lentil of your home. And now it's nighttime. On the night that the angel of the Lord is going to pass through the land. And you're huddled together as a family. Your flocks have been brought indoors so that they too will be covered by the lamb's blood. And all of a sudden, way far off, you hear a gut-wrenching wail. And then another, and another, and another. And every time the whale comes up, it's getting closer and closer and closer and louder and louder until it feels like it's just outside your door and that any moment the hand of God could reach through your roof and take your firstborn. And no doubt, if I were in that position, I would be gripping my boy. I'd be holding on to Ethan like nobody's business as if I could somehow turn back the hand of God if he so chose to take him. And you huddle as a family waiting, as the wailing in front of you is overwhelming. And then you hear a wail behind you. And then another, and another, and it's beginning to get further and further away. And in that moment, you realize, we've been passed over. The blood of the Lamb has sheltered us and protected us. Our children, our firstborn of our cattle has been redeemed. And even more than that, because of what God is doing, He is redeeming us from slavery. This is going to break the back of Pharaoh's resolve and we will be a free people at last and we will be able to go to our promised land. And so, because of what God did at the Passover, every year the people of Israel would celebrate On the 14th day of the month, they would take a lamb and they would sacrifice it. And then they would eat that lamb as a reminder of God's faithfulness to them as a people. To the reminder of what the blood had done for them. So what on earth does this have to do with Easter? Well, on the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, we call that Palm Sunday, right? And we just celebrated that this last Sunday. 
we tend to get focused on the palm branches that are being thrown down and the people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because the people of Israel who were in Israel, who were in Jerusalem at the time for the Passover festival, the people thought Jesus was going to be a conquering king. They were sure that he was coming to redeem Israel from what they thought was their greatest enemy, Rome. They thought they were going, that Jesus was going to rise up and throw off the yoke of Rome and reestablish Israel as the preeminent nation in the world. That's what they thought. However, even the timing reveals a, a different purpose. You see, on the day that Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem, it was the same day that they were to choose the Passover lamb. Choosing day. It was the 10th day of the first month for Israel. And then for the next week, Jesus lived in Jerusalem, interacted with them. They had the opportunity, just like that lamb was intended to be kept in your home, and you would grow closer to it, he was around them for about four or five days. And then, on the day when the Passover lamb was supposed to be sacrificed in preparation for the Passover, Jesus was taken before a tribunal, declared guilty, even though he had done nothing wrong. They placed a crown of thorns on his head and a robe on his shoulders and began to beat him. And then they took him outside and they began to whip him. And then they placed a heavy cross upon his shoulders and forced him to, to drag his cross which was a lot heavier than this one, which would crush him. And several times he fell down as he dragged his cross up to the hill called the Hill of the Skull, or Golgotha. And there they hung him on this cross. They pierced his hands and his feet. And the blood, I'm sure, from the crown of thorns ran down. And I love the way that Jesus Christ's crucifixion so perfectly dovetails with the Passover. It's beautiful and it's terrible because it's a tangible reminder for us that Jesus Christ was our sacrificial lamb. And by his blood, we have been redeemed. By his blood, even though we have rebelled against God, even though we have fallen and there's nothing we could do to save ourselves. We could not be good enough. We could not do enough good things to be declared righteous in God's eyes. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, did for us at Golgotha. He was our Passover lamb. And by his wounds, we have been healed. I love the way that Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2. You don't need to turn there. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, he writes, He himself, Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. And so today, on a day where all around the world, Jews today are celebrating the Passover. They're eating the Passover lamb as a tangible reminder of the way that God redeemed Israel from slavery, we too are going to share in a meal. And it's a meal that 
Jesus shared with his disciples on the night that he was ultimately arrested, the night before he was crucified. And during their meal, Jesus took a piece of bread and he said, this bread symbolizes my body, which I am going to give for you. So every time you eat of it, eat in remembrance of the sacrifice I'm making. And in the same way, this, this juice, and, or this wine, and he took a cup. He said, this cup symbolizes the blood that is going to be shed on the cross for you. The blood that will ultimately atone for your sins. So every time you drink of this cup, remember the sacrifice that I made so that you can stand before God, not in terror because of all the things you've done and all the ways that you have fallen short, but you can stand before our God as a son and as a daughter washed in the blood of the Lamb. When He looks at you, He does not see your mistakes. He sees His child. And He loves you more than you could ever possibly fathom. And so what we're going to do right now is I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And I'm going to invite you guys, if I could have the Nelsons and the Rapolis come up. Hi, sweetheart. Yeah, you can sit right next to me. I'm going to have them come up on the sides. I'm going to invite you to come up and grab the communion elements from either the right or the left. Go ahead and bring them back to your seat. And in a few moments, we're going to take communion together. All right, so let's worship. Be reading. What if you, if you didn't know where it was from, what you would probably think was an eyewitness account of Jesus' crucifixion. The reality is, what I'm about to read was written about 700 years before Jesus ever died on the cross. It was written before Rome was ever established as a nation. It was written before crucifixion was even invented as a way of putting people to death. It was written prophetically through one of God's prophets. A prophet is simply somebody who speaks the words of God. It was written by a prophet named Isaiah in Isaiah 53. And I'm simply going to read this. This was a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. But surely he took our pain upon himself and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgression. Remember, crucifixion had not even been invented at this time. He was crushed for our sins. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds... We have been healed. But we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, has laid upon him the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? 
For he was cut off from the land of the living. And for the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord make his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. For after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will give him a portion amongst the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and he made intercession for sinners like us. One of my very favorite statements in all of scripture is the very last thing that Jesus Christ uttered on the cross before he finally breathed his last breath and died. He shouted, Tetelestai, a word that we're not familiar with perhaps, but the word Tetelestai means it is finished. It's the kind of word that somebody would scrawl across a bill of sale. Let's say that you were buying a home and you'd been making payments. And when you finally made the very last payment, you would scrawl the word Tetelestai across it. Ethan, please go sit down. Because it could also be interpreted as paid in full. And on the cross, Jesus, as he was hanging there, after he had suffered for us, after his blood had poured down for us, his last cry was to Telestai, paid in full, it is finished. We no longer have to try to earn God's love as if we could ever do that. We no longer have to try through sheer grit and determination to live righteous lives. Because of what he did on the cross, we are not called sinners. We are called saints. We are not rejected. We are called sons and daughters of the living God. And that's what makes today good. Not that he died, but why he died. He died for us. He died for me. He died for you. So it is finished. And let us celebrate his death. But it's Friday. And we know that Sunday's coming. That's when we're really going to celebrate. So let me pray and then we will, we will continue our 24 hours of prayer. For those of you who have not signed up, there's a sign-up sheet in the back. But, but Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you paid the penalty for us. Thank you, God, for loving us and justifying us through your blood. So we give you our lives. If you can die for us, the least we can do is live for you. So would you help us to recognize the gravity of your sacrifice? We both grieve it We grieve our sin, but we also celebrate that we are not marked by it. And we celebrate that Sunday is coming. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Have a wonderful evening.